All right. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Thank you, Stephen. Um, Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Heights. And uh, some of you may remember using this room one time before. It sort of swallows us up. So hopefully next next week we'll be uh, back up in our usual room. Uh, if anyone needs a bathroom, there is one just outside those doors and down down the hall. Uh, you don't have to go upstairs. Um, so we are in this series um, where we've been looking for the last two weeks at the Lord's Prayer. And so I just wanted to highlight a couple of new books that we've put on our table. Uh, One is by N.T. Wright, The Lord and His Prayer. Um, And so that sort of goes through the Lord's Prayer and shows how you you can sort of reflect on it as as an outline. And then this book was recommended by Sarah Beth and also a friend like 24 hours before. So within 24 hours, I had two recommendations for this book. Uh, this is The Divine Hours, and this is Prayers for Springtime. And uh, what Phyllis Tickle's done is she's collected uh, all of these uh, different prayers and readings from multiple different uh, denominations and theological traditions and sort of compiled them in here. So sometimes when we're sort of at a loss for words, or we, we don't know what to pray or how to pray, this can be a, a very beautiful way uh, of entering in, into prayer. So that, that's a very practical sort of uh, a tool that you you might want to pick up um, from the the book table back there. Okay. So we'll begin with this. Babylonian religion, some of you know about this, as one of the world's uh, most ancient uh, creation myths, dating back about 12 to 1250 BC. Actually, even those versions are based on even older, earlier versions. And so their creation myth goes like this. In the beginning, in the beginning was Apsu and Tiamat. And Apsu and Tiamat gave birth to Mamu and all the other younger gods. But the younger gods made so much noise that the older gods couldn't get any sleep or rest. There was no peace. And so the elder gods decided they would kill all the other younger gods. But the younger gods found out this plan that they were going to be wiped out. And so one of them goes and kills Apsu. But that still left Tiamat, his wife, his consort, alive. And so she vows revenge on all the other younger gods. So afraid, the younger gods turn to the youngest of all the younger gods, Marduk. And Marduk says, yes, I'll protect you. I will protect you, but you must promise me this, that I will have chief and undisputed power and authority in the assembly of the gods. And so having extracted this, extorted this promise from all the younger gods, uh, he goes and kills Tiamat. And this bit's a little graphic, but it says that he, he threw a net, caught her in a net, and then drives an evil wind down her throat drives a spear through her that pierces her distended belly and pierces her heart. He then smashes her skull with a club, scatters her blood, and then spreads out her corpse, and with it creates the universe, the cosmos. 
In ancient Babylonian and ancient Mesopotamian myth, violence is the source of everything. It is what we might call the myth of redemptive violence. Violence was for the ancient Mesopotamians what love is for Jesus, the central dynamic of existence. The theologian Walter Wink suggests that our culture is deeply committed to this myth of redemptive violence, that for us, the central dynamic of our existence is violence as well. We really believe at some level that we can establish order through violence, peace established through violence, justice established through violence, our power established through violence, our existence, our very existence established through violence. It's the, it is the spirituality of the modern world. It has the status of religion. Now, we may not feel that we have any particular sort of piety, religious piety or devotion towards this, but, but that's the magic. That's how this works, why the, the myth of redemptive violence has been so powerful and compelling down through the ages from Babylonian times till now, but precisely because there doesn't seem to be anything mythical about it. It just seems to be the way things are. It's, it's just the uh, nature of things. It's inevitable. It's what works. And this is, this has just been rammed into our heads from the time that we're really young, from the time we're children, right? So you're watching TV and you're watching movies and over and over again as kids, we're, we're watching how violence is the resolution. Violence is the answer. And so by the time you've reached uh, 18, uh, you have watched over 200,000 acts of simulated violence, including some 16,000 murders. And the thing about all of these murders and all of these acts of hundreds of thousands of acts of violence and thousands of murders is most of them, a lot of them, have been committed by the good guys, by the heroes, by the people where the role models, the people we're meant to admire and look at, we're rooting for, the protagonists, we're on their side. And, and it's committed by, by those people. Now just think about that for a moment. What church can compete with that? Right? There is, there is no religious system that has ever remotely rivaled the myth of redemptive violence in its ability to catechize its young so early and so thoroughly. And so it's very difficult To hear Jesus' words when he says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Wait, what? If someone makes you carry his bags one mile, referring to the Roman rule that the Roman soldier could take the occupying civilian, the people they were occupying and get their civilians to carry their bags for them, go with them two miles. And if someone takes the coat from you, give them the shirt of your back as well. It's difficult to hear those words and not think to ourselves, at some level, Jesus is naive and stupid. (laughs) We may not say that out loud, because we don't say those things out loud as Christians, do we? But in the back of our heads, somewhere in the darker recesses of our hearts, we're thinking, this is, this is naive. This is, Jesus obviously doesn't understand how the real world works. He doesn't get it. And so it's difficult to hear Jesus' words, but let's listen again and see 
if we can hear something other than naivety, if we listen carefully. So Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn, well, let's just stop there. <laughs> let's just stop at, at that. Someone strikes you on the right cheek. Why does he mention the right cheek in particular? Well, Jesus lived in a right-handed world where left hands were reserved for unclean tasks. And so we can know that the person who was doing the striking, the hitting, was using their right hand. But the only way that you can strike someone on the right cheek with your right hand is with a backhanded slap. Some of you may have heard this before, but this what this means is in their culture is it doesn't connote uh, a fist fight, it connotes an insult. It connotes an insult, not a, not a fist fight, okay? So Jesus is, is and actually, uh, this was, if you were to strike one of your equals in this way, uh, this would be completely, not just socially, but legally unacceptable. I mean, you would be, you would owe, there was actually carried with it a large fine if you struck someone that way. Um, so this was as much about insult and uh, offensiveness as it was about violence. Well, it was about both, right? It was, it was about this sort of violent insult with the back of their hand that leads to this escalation of more violence and, and more violence. There's only so many times you could put up with that. This, this was the way that the uh, oppressor, uh, the, the, the masters treated their slaves, the, the Romans treated the Jews, the, uh, the, um, the occupiers, the soldiers treated the civilians. Last semester, some of you were here when we did this, uh, got all of you to write down some questions and thoughts or note cards that you would like us to sort of pick up as we go through this year, uh, and different books in the Bible that you're interested, questions you have about the Bible, questions you just have about just all sorts of things, and that you'd like to see us address from the front. Uh, and so one of the questions that we had was a very good question. It, it was this. It was, do we have the right to be offended? Do we have the right to be offended? Um, and, and I'd want to respond to that question with another question. We have good precedent for that, right? So the question I would want to ask is, why are you offended? Or what, what is it that you were actually offended by? What are you offended about? And, that, and that's a serious question, right, in, in a culture which has made a sort of an art form and a, and a professional sport out of being offended and who can be most offended and, and who's the most outraged and all of that, right? So, so that's a serious question, right? But when there is a genuine cause for offense, I'm not sure it's that we should be asking, is it a right? I think actually it's not just a right, it's a responsibility. It's not, it's not just a right, I think we have a responsibility. But Jesus introduces all of this um, by saying that these people, these acts, and the people who do these acts are evil. He says, do not resist an evil person. And, and the evil he's talking about is this, this sort of this striking on the right cheek, this, this making them carry their bags, ab abuse of the civilians and the people you're occupying. It, it's this evil of, of uh, taking someone's coat and, and the shirt of their back. And, and so he says, do not resist an, an evil person. And, and the reason why, you know why these are, Jesus considers this evil, right? It's, this is something, if you've been around at Trinity Heights for a while, you, you, you know why this is evil. It's because it fails to recognize the image of God in the person that they're doing, that you're striking, you're taking their coat, you're, you're making them carry your bags. It fails to recognize the image of God in them. It fails to draw out the image of God from them. It fails to reflect the image of God to them. 
right? And so it works against God's purpose for his creation, right? God wants to fill his creation with his image. He wants to rule his creation with his image, right? And, and, so, and so this is, this is evil. But Jesus is more interested, not just in, you know, it's in the, the follow-up question, actually. What is my response? What is my responsibility? You'll, you'll notice Jesus doesn't really talk about rights very much. That, that the rights language works in a context where, you know, right, human rights are a thing. That, that wasn't a thing in, in, under Roman occupation. Human what? Right? But, but he talks about responsibility a lot. Not so much rights, but a responsi- responsibility. And so he wants to know, what is our responsibility? What is our responsibility in, in these situations? And uh, he tells us. He says, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone makes you carry his bags one mile, go with him too. If someone takes your coat from you, give him the shirt of your back also. And at this point, this is, this is the moment where it starts to feel like Jesus is naive. This is, this is right when, once, we, once we get to his response. This is your responsibility, he says. It feels like, Jesus, you don't know how this world really works. And it feels like he's asking us to be doormats. Just let evil run rampant over you. Let's look at this more closely. This, when Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he's not saying, just put up with this dehumanizing behavior. Do, do not resist. The word resist is almost a, a technical term uh, for revolutionary resistance of a specifically military variety. Right? So, so it's this, the word resist, when he says do not resist an evil person, it's, it's almost a technical term of, of violent revolutionary resistance of a, of a particularly uh, military variety. And so what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, look, in his context, you cannot join the revolution, the violent revolutionary. Stop sharpening your swords. In fact, put your swords down. You, you cannot join this violent revolution. Last week, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and we talked about how actually the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to revolution. But all the way, if you remember, even the word father, just the word father has these political revolutionary overtones, if, if you remember from last week. But He's constantly defining how this revolution is going to go. And he does it in the Lord's Prayer. He does it around the Lord's Prayer, the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's constantly defining, and here he is again defining, this is what my revolution is going to look like. So how does this revolution work again? Because <laughs> this doesn't fit with any of our logic or the way that we're trained to think, right? This, this doesn't fit. And, and so, I'm, I'm, Jesus, could you explain, how does this, how does this actually work? Walter Wink uh, takes us back to that moment where we're being struck. And he says, imagine if you've been struck on the right cheek with the back of the hand, this, this insult, right? But instead of sort of slinking away, crushed and, and sh- feeling shame, or instead of responding eventually, after that happening too many times, you respond in violent retaliation. It happened every now and then. Instead of responding in shame or violent retaliation, he says, imagine that you defiantly turned the other cheek. Now, in order for the other person to be able to repeat the insult, they have to use the left hand. Do you remember what we said? The right hand is a right-handed world. The left hand was used for unclean tasks. 
This is a creative way of showing the dirtiness, the uncleanness, the wrongness of what they were doing. And I think that's what Jesus is asking in, in each of these things, to carry the bags, give them the shirt of your back. He, he's inviting us to actually show them from the inside the wrongness of, of what they're up to, what they're doing. It's not simply about letting evil go unchallenged. Jesus is saying, look, find creative, active, non-violent ways to reassert the image of God into this world which has forgotten what that looks like. And if, if, you don't, if you're not sure, is it really about the image? You've got to talk a lot about the image of God, Stephen. It's, let me tell you, nine times out of ten, it's, about, it's almost always about the image of God. Okay, it starts in Genesis chapter 1, goes all the way through. And if you're thinking, well, is this really about that? Just jump down to verse 44 and 45, uh, and what you'll find is this, this is. We'll look at this in more detail next week. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, that you may be children of your father in heaven. Children reflect their father's, their parents' image. That it's an invitation for us to reflect the image of God, to reassert the, find creative ways to reassert the image of God into the world. And I just want to, to, to sort of go into a bit more detail of how this, this works. What we're doing is we're refusing, we don't let, we're refusing to let the enemy, the, the violence, determine our, the shape of our humanity. They may be forgetting that you are an image bearer. They may be forgetting how to reflect the image of God to you. They're not drawing it out of you. They may forget that God's purpose is to fill the world with his image. And, but, but what this does, by refusing to respond in like, it says, you may fail to reflect the image of God to me, but I'm telling you, what you're doing right now doesn't look like God. Let me show you what it looks like. You, you're reflecting, you're refusing to let your humanity be shaped by that violence. By reflecting God's image, we also reveal the dirtiness of their deed, right? Like we just talked about. Not, not from the outside by law or by, um, by force, but, but, but from the inside of their own conscience. The other thing we're doing is we are contending for the image of God in the other person. You see, this is not just about my capacity to bear the image of God. But I'm contending for the image of God in the other person. I'm contending for God's purpose and plan for, for humanity. Uh, this is, this is, you see, we insert ourselves into this vast picture. I'm contending for God's purpose and plan for humanity. You will be my image bearers. You will rule this place through my image. So I'm contending not just for my, the image of God in me, but I'm contending for the image of God in you. Well, not you, but whoever it is who's hitting me, right? And then what we, offer, we do is we also offer our enemies a new hope. What could our future look like together? What if we are friends? You know what? If you and I were friends, if you struck me, I'm not going to punch you back. I'd, I'd seek for reconciliation. You know, if, if you were to make me ask me to carry your bags, you're my friend. I'd carry it as far as you wanted me to go. Well, if you were, if we weren't enemies, if you were my friend, if you, you could have the, you don't just need my coat. Here, take the shirt off my back as well. What if we were friends? What if this was our future together? We offer hope, a different kind of hope for our future, for our enemies. Well, how can we, in this building of all places, uh, talk about nonviolent responses to 
the offense of genuine evil and not talk about Martin Luther King Jr. You, as you walked in, right, through the Claremont entrance, you see all the, the posters up. They take them down sometimes, but then they're all back up again of Martin Luther King, right? Um, and he was someone who was responding. He, sa he said over and over again, look, my, my methodology, yeah, I get some of my methods from Mahatma Gandhi, but my principles, the teaching, it all comes from Jesus. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. Uh, this is what he said it over and over again. Uh, in my undergraduate year, I, I read this book by a guy called Richard Leischer, and it's called um, The Preacher King. And it's an analysis of all of Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, sermons and, and his, his messaging and, and his published speeches and, and all of that. And at one point in the book, he actually uh, places, he does this compare and contrast between Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, he places those alongside each other. And the moment you put their speeches, their rhetoric alongside each other, you, you get this, uh, it, all of this stuff we've just been talking about, right? It becomes crystal clear. And, and you start to see how King was contending for the humanity, not just of his own humanity, but of the humanity of his enemies as well. And, and so here's Leisha's analysis, and I'm just going to uh, give you the, the points he, he makes. King regularly addressed white audiences with the pronoun we. Malcolm inevitably said you and actually made fun of the black person who spoke of America as we for, for uh, obvious reasons. Um, King spoke incessantly of hum humanity. Malcolm doesn't seem to have believed in a corporate humanity that is not divided and barricaded according to race and religion. King and Malcolm both knew there were enemies out there, but only Malcolm would acknowledge them. Before any audience, King would begin, I need not pause to say how honored I am to be here. Before any audience, Malcolm would begin, Mr. Moderator, brothers and sisters, friends and enemies. I just can't believe everyone in here is a friend, and I don't want to leave anybody out. He was absolutely right, of course. Um, Malcolm's language was peppered with imperatives, more than 90% of King's sentences. This is the detail they've gone into these speeches, right? 90% of imperatives, but 90% of King's sentences in his published sermons are declarative. Only 2.5% are openly imperative, which this is gold for any, any uh, budding preachers or, or pastors across the country should l look at that and go, you know, is, is, are my sermons just full of you should, you ought to, this is what you should, this is you should, you should, or, or are we, or is this more the declarative, where we're announcing and declaring something? Um, Malcolm often used animal imagery to bear, make his point, comparing their forebears to cows for the slaughter and the white people as snakes with blood on their jaws. King used metaphors of nature to describe the evil and tumultuous times. Example, an earthquake that engulfs us all. For King, the future is a promise. Oh. I guess those, the slides went wrong. But anyway, the, for King, the future is a promise. For Malcolm, uh, it's always a threat. King's starting point was the unity of the races. Malcolm spoke about the evil of the white race and spoke for and with black Americans. King's rhetorical structures would place black and white, Jew and Gentile, Catholic and Protestant together. Malcolm never placed black and white in a coordinated structure within a sentence. And the author says the difference between King and Malcolm is the difference between that rhetoric of absorption and the rhetoric of attack. The rhetoric of absorption, which is what Jesus is inviting us to absorb, what is coming at us, is this failure to reflect God's image and then reflect some, absorb it and then reflect something back, or the rhetoric of attack. And it was this language, this storytelling, this way of speaking that allowed that 
that allowed King to narrate the civil rights movement the way he did and show people, again, not from outside legislation, right? That came later, and slowly. In some sense, we're still waiting. The, the legislation, not from outside legislation, not from force, but from the inside of their own consciences, in their own hearts, revealing to them the dirtiness of their deed, the evil of segregation. And he offered us a new hope. And he said, what if one day we were friends? It's interesting. Um, a lot of the same people who sort of approve of what Martin Luther King Jr. did, well, when, it, when it comes to other situations and, and war, they're like, no, no, we've got to go to war. And it's like, really? So, so it's okay if, when it's over here, but suddenly in this other situation, you, you think violence is the answer. It wasn't the answer back then. We approve of that, but we, you know, it's just, a, in, just an interesting sort of discrepancy. Um, it's amazing, though, because if we sit here and we, we're thinking, you know, segregation is a dirty, evil thing, it's not because we're inherently better than the person, inherently better people than the people back then. If we'd grown up as white people, being inculcated with the same stuff they were, we would think in those ways too. Don't, don't get to thinking that we're sitting here, we're better people. We're not. But King and all those who followed Jesus with him, instead of responding to this offensive and evil thing with violence, they contended for the image of God. They contended for humanity, not just their own humanity, but for the humanity of the people in front of them. I, I believe King had in mind that he was contending for the humanity. Well, it's not a quite, he was definitely contending for the humanity of future generations. He was contending for the image of God in you, and he was contending for the image of God in me. And that's what we're being invited to do. Um, in a world full of violence and violent, hateful speech, in a world so utterly, profoundly committed to the myth of redemptive violence, we're going to have to work to understand the meaning of Jesus' words, the logic of Jesus' commands. That's what we've been trying to do this morning because they don't make sense at first glance. And we'll have to practice in, in small ways, Maybe not when we're faced with violence. Perhaps we can practice when we're faced with spite, unkindness. What's our responsibility then? But we're inundated with this stories, story after story of redemptive violence. So here's, here's, I think, part of the real work that we have to engage in. We need to tell those stories where, of, of nonviolent, peaceful resistance um, we need to tell them to each other. Go, go, go find these stories. Google some. Get books. Read. And let's start sharing these stories with each other. Uh, so wouldn't it be great if we sort of had our own Trinity Heights archive? So if, there, if there's of, of these kinds of stories, we're inundated with these other stories. Can you, can you find these other stories out there? Because these stories are there over and over. I've got, I, had, I had a bunch. I had to cut so much material. for the, Every week I have to cut so much material. But this, this week I had to cut so many stories. So, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to put that on you guys. Let's, let's go and find these stories. And, and let's, if there's one that strikes you, let's start sharing it with each other. Share it with your community. Share it with me. I'll, I'll start sharing them from the front from time to time. We can talk about them in our community groups. We can start narrating our world together 
this way. It'd be an interesting project to engage in as a church. These stories are out there. We just don't tell them nearly often enough. But that is a story we want to tell with our community right here.